My first romantic sexual experience was very embarrassing. But before my wife turns off the microphone, <laughs> let's focus on our text for today. In the fifth chapter of Proverbs, Solomon, who is usually acknowledged to be the writer of Proverbs 5, addresses two main subjects with his son, staying away from prostitutes and forbidden women, and being true to the wife of his youth. Despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, I do not consider myself a smart aleck. I do, however, have some serious questions about what Solomon thought his son would learn from his advice regarding sex. If I had been Rehoboam, his oldest son, I'm afraid my response to him would have been something like this. Thanks, Dad, but you're the king. If you want to get rid of the prostitutes around here, you can easily do it. And aren't forbidden sexual relations a lot like what Grandpa David and Grandma Bathsheba, your mom and dad, did? And do you even remember the breasts of your first lovely deer and graceful doe? Do you know which of your 300 wives and 700 concubines was the wife of your youth? By the way, if you're living up to your husbandly duties every year, that means three women a night for you, and they get you once a year. I'm impressed, but I think I'm doing just fine, thank you. I'll look somewhere else for advice and wisdom on my sex life. Before we go any farther, I think I need to set some rules of engagement and define some terms. I am a man, and today I am going to address, for the most part, a man's view of what wisdom might be garnered from sex. I may occasionally stray into some observations of what women seem to think, but I am not a great fool, and I know there are great differences between how sex is viewed by the different genders. As Billy Crystal said in the movie City Slickers, women need a reason to have sex. Men just need a place. I also am not going to address the issues faced by those who are LGBTQI other than to endorse the thinking behind a comment made by Lewis Smedes, a professor of theology and ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary. I agree with him that we who are heterosexual need to exercise extreme humility when we approach issues faced by the LGBTQI community, for we are supremely ignorant of the challenges they face. But back to David and Bathsheba. Their story gives us a good opportunity to look at some of the terms I'm going to use today. 
These are my definitions of these terms. So if you've heard other definitions or you don't like mine, I'm sorry. Also, I may be more open, more blunt, and more explicit than some of you may appreciate. Although, knowing my father is watching online and my granddaughter is sitting down here, I will do my best to be sensitive to the audience, the surroundings, and the context. I divide sexual experiences into five categories. I agree with Cher Height, an American sex educator, that sexual experiences include much more than just sexual intercourse. These categories are not necessarily sequential, nor are all of them present in every relationship. Depending on the context, the activities in each category may be pure and beautiful. They also may be dangerous, immoral, or even illegal. The first stage I call sexual awareness. This basically is just seeing, hearing, or even smelling a fragrance from someone who is not of the same gender. There is no touching involved, and there's no communication. This can occur from any distance, and it may not include any level of attraction. The individual may move on, never think of it again, or may go home and fantasize about it. Some of you may not think this is a sexual experience, but this is what happened to David when one afternoon he walked out on his porch, looked over the city, and became aware of a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop below him. The second category of sexual experience I call sexual interaction. This is kind of like a two-way sexual awareness, but it includes some degree of recognition. The interaction is perceived by both parties. It may just be eye contact. Something may be said. It may be a slight gesture, like a nod, or a wink, or a smile. Still, at this level, there is no physical contact. Each person may move from the interaction with completely different perceptions about what happened. Again, there may be no attraction. There may be one-way attraction or there may be mutual attraction. There may even be repulsion, which often happens if a lecherous man undresses the woman with his eyes. There also may be misperceptions about any possible attraction. One person may go home and tell his friends, I think they really like me, while the other may not even remember the interaction. This is the type of experience Steve Martin was referencing when he said, you know that look women give you when they want sex? Me neither. <laughs> when Bathsheba was brought to David's palace, they had sexual interaction. We know that David was significantly attracted, but due to the enormous power differential between them, we really don't know what Bathsheba thought at this point. My third category I call sexual encounter. This is perhaps the most complex and complicated stage. This stage includes a minimal amount of physical touch. 
It could be shaking hands, patting someone on the back, hugging, pecking someone on the cheek, or even a gentle touch on the arm. These touches are usually considered culturally appropriate, and the encounter is not meant to be sensual, stimulating, or erotic. Unfortunately, motives can be ambiguous. Sexual encounters have been called platonic relationships to downplay their sexual nature and to make them seem innocent and safe. However, they may be used by one or both individuals involved to obtain an appropriate or a forbidden sensual experience in an apparently innocent manner. Non-consensual or unwanted touch is always unjustified and may be considered sexual battery in some legal jurisdictions. This type of encounter is the kind that maybe your children have with Uncle Eddie at Thanksgiving. And I would ask you that if your children are uncomfortable and say they don't want to hug Uncle Eddie, don't make them. They may be seeing more than you in the relationship. The fourth category I call sexual contact. This occurs when two individuals touch in a physical manner that is specifically intended to be sensual, stimulating, and erotic. In couples who are not married, we usually call this petting or heavy petting. In a married couple or a couple that are planning on going to the next level, it's called foreplay. If it is not consensual, it is called sexual assault and is illegal. The final category that I have is listed as sexual intimacy. Even though there are hundreds of euphemisms for this level of sexual activity, it is difficult to know exactly how to refer to it in a multi-aged, heterogeneous, socially conservative church congregation. Suffice it to say that when David and Bathsheba were sexually intimate, Bathsheba became pregnant. Now, depending on the context of these sexual experiences, each of these five categories may be immoral or they may be pure. It also may be true that the experience is pure for one of the individuals involved, but immoral for the other. I say this because sex, for the most part, occurs where you can't see it, in the brain. Bill Bryson, in his recent book, The Body, A Guide for Occupants, states, Your brain is you. Everything else is just plumbing and scaffolding. Now, clearly you need more than a brain to have a complete sexual experience, but for some people, the fantasies they have in their minds may be the only sex they ever have. As the comedian Emo Phillips has said, I'm a great lover, I'll bet. Now, my focus on the brain is not to downplay the scaffolding or the plumbing. Our scaffolding and plumbing influence our brains. Our brains influence the scaffolding and the plumbing. Some scaffolding is much more attractive and enticing than some other. 
What is sexy varies greatly by age, place, and culture. It's, it's the glasses, isn't it? <laughs> Both the health and the attractiveness of the scaffolding impact the brain, but it is the brain that stimulates the scaffolding and alerts the plumbing with chemicals that it forms. The Bible calls this the heart, but it is the brain where the mind, the personality, and both our sexual and our spiritual responses reside. Several years ago, I was dining in an Italian restaurant in Hollywood with a Jewish medical friend. As we were eating, a couple came into the room and were seated to the table to my right. She appeared to be an aspiring young actress, and he a very much older Hollywood producer. The young lady was wearing a sweater that accentuated and exposed a provocatively large portion of her scaffolding assets. <laughs> I don't remember what color the sweater was. My colleague was directly facing the woman. I turned to him and quietly perjured myself. I'm certainly glad I'm not sitting where you are, I said. I might be tempted to lust. He smiled and replied, that's the difference between Christians and us Jews. I can sit here and thoroughly enjoy the beauties that God has created, whereas you would sit here and feel guilty. If I don't act on my thoughts, no harm, no foul. Christ directly addressed this idea of sex being in the mind when he stated, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh at a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Many newer Bible translations are a bit more descriptive. In the message... It says, you know the next commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another's spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. The easy-to-read version translates the passage this way, but I tell you that if a man looks at a woman and wants to sin sexually with her, he has already committed that sin with her in his mind. Lust is a very tricky matter. It's defined as being an intense sexual desire, an uncontrolled or illicit sexual appetite, lecherousness, or a passionate and overmastering, overmastering desire or craving. It's a corrupting emotion, but it's still better to lust than to act on our carnal impulses. Many less people get hurt in the long run. I think my friend was wrong, but 
I also think he was more right than many of us Christians might admit. When a beautiful woman or a handsome man walks into a room, unless you are blind or have strange tastes, it's impossible not to recognize here is something that is pleasing to the eye. That in itself is not lust. It's what you do with that information in your mind that makes the difference. You may actually be able to take it to a place where you thank God for the beautiful world he's created, and then you move on. As sinful human beings, however, it's more likely that we will send this information to a dark place in our mind and linger on it a bit too long. How we react to this information has ramifications both on our relationship to God and our relationship with our loved ones. One day, a large group of us were waiting outside the Cheesecake Factory in downtown Seattle, Washington. Some street performers were taking advantage of the crowd, playing hand drums, singing, and dancing. Evidently, one of the young female dancers was also sharing her scaffolding assets with the world. And when we finally went into the restaurant and were sitting down, my wife asked me, what did you think of that outfit? I was honestly able to answer, I don't know, I wasn't looking. My wife looked at me carefully to see if I was joking or telling the truth, and then softly said, thank you. No one likes a spouse with a roving eye. God gave the Israelites certain rites and symbols in an attempt to keep them from lusting and to going after their neighbors with their sensual and carnal rituals. I personally believe that that's what circumcision was all about, a reminder that they were to be different. Their garments also included reminders. You will have these tassels to look at, and you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Each of the Abrahamic religions believe that lust is a sinful thing. They also know that it permeates almost everything we do. As Jeremiah says, the heart is hopelessly dark and deceitful, a puzzle that no one can figure out. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I get to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. Or as Joseph de Meister put it, I do not know what the heart of a rascal may be. I know what is in the heart of an honest man. It is horrible. The natural human religious response to this problem is to pile up additional rules and regulations to try to force obedience. The effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as a barrier against sin. For seeing that they fail to keep the law, they will devise rules and regulations of their own 
to force themselves to obey. Here's how this works. I know that I must not lust. I know that many things that I see cause me to lust. Therefore, I will require those who cause me to lust to cover up, to hide their hair, their legs, their faces, their eyes. In fact, we may have to cover them up completely. It's claimed that this is all done in the name of religion or culture or modesty, but many religions and cultural authorities admit much of it is done because men believe that women cannot be trusted to control their lust, that they are temptresses who cause others to lust after them when they see their beauty. Several years ago, a group of us went to the Holy Lands and spent some time in Wadi Rum, Jordan. At one of the oases we visited, a small tea shop and a gift store that had carpet floors and a tent-like structure was where we ate lunch. For reasons I do not remember, my wife and I were convinced to dress up in the native garb. My wife wore a niqab that covered everything except her eyes. The local men went wild when they saw my wife's eyes, which I can certainly understand. <laughs> the store owner offered me a million camels for my wife. Unfortunately, I had no way of transporting them back to the U.S., <laughs> and they have a disgusting habit of spitting. <laughs> but the important lesson I learned was you cannot cover a woman up enough to stop men from lusting after them. Our minds will fill in the missing data to create or to support our fantasies. But it gets worse. God created women with the only organ in the human body whose sole purpose is to provide sexual pleasure. And yet, according to a 2013 study, almost half of men and 30% of women don't know where to find it or what to do with it once they have found it. This organ has more nerve endings than any other part of the body, but for almost 75% of women, it is not even touched during sexual intimacy in the most commonly used position. Because women are seen as being sexual playthings by some or enticing temptresses or sperm receptacles for men, over 200 million women in the world have had this organ removed in a quasi-surgical procedure performed as a cultural rite of passage under filthy conditions, leading to severe pain, excessive bleeding, infections, possible death, or a lifetime of urinary retention, complicated childbirth, painful sexual, sexual experiences, and depression, all because men cannot control their lust or trust others to control theirs. 
The Bible is full of stories of sex, sex usually gone bad. There are stories of bigamy, rape, sex trafficking, incest, stalking, male and female prostitution, fornication, pimping, and adultery, and sexual assault. So, if God knew how potentially destructive sex would be, why did he choose us to create us with different genders in the first place? Here, I believe, we reach the most beautiful and most dangerous part of the story of human sex and sexy wisdom. But we must go back to creation or even before that. Ellen White states that all heaven took a deep and joyful interest in the creation of the world and of Adam and Eve. Human beings were a distinct order. They were made in the image of God, and it was the Creator's design that they would populate the earth. When God wanted a billion angels, he created a billion angels. When God wanted a billion humans, he created two with a unique ability to make more. So, with a refined and sanctified imagination, let's go back and join the heavenly beings in watching the creation of Adam and Eve. In the first four days of creation, God has prepared the earth for living beings. Then on the fifth day and early on the sixth day, he created creatures that were given the ability to recreate in their own image. I'm most interested in the mammals. There are heated arguments about how loving and intelligent mammals may be, but as I watch their creation, it becomes obvious that some of them are created with unusual organs that are predominantly on the outside, and some have, and they have matched partners who are created with the unique organs that are predominantly on the inside. I don't know how much education God gave those who were watching, but I must assume that they gained some understanding regarding the function of these anatomical structures. Then God knelt down and began to sculpt something out of clay. We're all familiar with the beautiful marble sculptures of Michelangelo. His most famous sculpted work is the statue of a young David portrayed preparing for his battle with Goliath. It is breathtakingly realistic and stands almost 17 feet high. If we use this statue as a representation of God sculpting Adam, it becomes uncomfortably obvious that Adam was created with something hanging down between his legs, which I have hidden for the benefit of my granddaughter and for older women. Anyone who has seen this statue, however, will admit that these external organs are notoriously conspicuous. The point to be made, however, is that as we watch God creating Adam, it initially appears that these anatomic attributes are superfluous. 
because Adam apparently was given reproductive organs, but no companion with the complementary scaffolding. I can see Adam and the angels wondering, what is this all about? As the story progresses and he is put to work naming the animals, it becomes even more painfully clear to him that he was alone, without a suitable companion. It's almost as if God was playing a trick on Adam. But even when God plays tricks, he has good reasons for doing so. One of Lucifer's claims against God was that he had created his beings as servants or slaves and that he was unwilling to share his creative power with them. As God created Adam and Eve, it was as if he was saying, watch this. Adam recognizes that he is alone and God acknowledges the fact it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make an helpmeet for him. Man was made, not made, to dwell in solitude. He was to be a social being. Without companionship, the beautiful scenes and delightful enjoyments of Eden would have failed to yield perfect happiness. Even communion with the angels could not have satisfied his desire for sympathy and compassionship. There was none of the same nature to love and to be loved. Those of us watching God create now stand with bated breath as God puts Adam to sleep and gently removes one of his ribs. Working from this rib, he once again produces a magnificent sculpted work. I actually don't think God let anyone else watch as he created Eve. I think he wanted Adam to be the first one to see this beautiful being. And when she was finally unveiled, I believe there was an audible gasp across the universe. I don't say that to mean to be sexist, but studies show that both the majority of men and women believe the nude female body is much more attractive than the male. Sorry, guys. I assume that the angels agree. I don't know what the Hebrew word for wow is, but I think Adam used it when he saw Eve. I think Eugene Peterson in the message translation of the Bible comes close to describing that feeling. The man said, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, name her woman, for she was made from man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife. They become one flesh. The two of them, the man and his wife, were naked, but they felt no shame. There are at least three, four important lessons from those verses. Number one, man and woman were created as equals. Number two, a man is supposed to leave his father and mother, economically, psychologically, and at least microgeographically, when he takes a wife. Man and woman are to become as one flesh. In fact, God's first command to humans was, 
go have sex. They were naked and not ashamed. Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to be controlled by him, or not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. A part of man, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self, showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in this relation. When the divine principles are recognized and obeyed in this relation, marriage is a blessing. It guards the purity and happiness of the race. It provides for man's social needs. It elevates the physical, the intellectual, and the moral nature. This underscores the central purpose of creation. We were created in large part to answer the questions that had been raised in Lucifer's rebellion. We were made sexual as the ultimate demonstration to the universe of the love, the freedom, and the creativity expressed most clearly in the loving and trusting relationship of oneness revealed in the Trinity. Boggles our minds and the math doesn't work. But in the Godhead, one plus one plus one equals one. Similarly, in humans, one plus one equals one. But the summation is more than its parts. As Warren Bennis has written, we were not created to be sex organs engaged in mechanical acts. Instead, as Psalm says, we were created gods, in God's image, with the power to think, to be creative, and included in that was the ability to make little beings in our own image. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, is aghast at the idea that Christians would break their oneness with God by becoming one flesh with prostitutes or forbidden women. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that anyone who is united with a prostitute is one body with her? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Solomon learned this the hard way, and he wanted to spare his sons the pain he had suffered. He too urged them not to become one flesh with those who lived outside of their relationship with God. He also knew that you cannot love a thousand women the way you can the wife of your youth. For the fundamental, unnegotiable basis of a loving relationship is trust. And trust must be gained over time. The most important question in the universe is asked billions of times a day. But it's usually not asked out loud. It's the underlying question behind every relationship. Every pet asks it daily of its owners, 
except in Boulder, where it asks it of its guardian. Every child regularly asks it of his parents. Every lover asks it every time they approach their mate. We ask it so often that we often forget we are asking it. It is the only significant question we ever ask God, and it is the only question He will ever ask us in the judgment. The question is not, are your sins forgiven? The question is, can I trust you? The most sinful and godlike things we as sexual beings do are done in bed. If we are focused on how we are feeling, on how we are performing, then we are breaking trust with our lover and we are repeating the self-centered sin of Lucifer as we misrepresent the character of God to our closest companion. This was the disaster of my first sexual experience. If, on the other hand, we are truly expanding the boundaries of love by focusing on bringing pleasure to our mate and intensifying the oneness for which we were created, then we are fulfilling the godlike purpose behind our creation as sexual beings. The scaffolding will sag. The plumbing will rust and corrode. But as long as the mind is alert and uncluttered, our spiritual and sexual oneness can continue to flourish. That may not feel sexy, but I believe it is true biblical wisdom.